All right. Well, good morning. Um, I wanted to start this morning by reading to you the words of a song. So here it goes. Oh, Sarah, it just ain't fair that I got the girl beyond compare. Now, the lyrical genius that you just heard was the opening line to the song that I wrote to my wife uh, when I was 19. And um, I know you're probably thinking, like, Tyler, you missed your calling, because that was just beautiful. All th three of those things rhymed. Compare. I could have used hair. Who knows? Um, but I remember writing that song um, because when uh, we started dating, we were in college, um, and we'd been dating a couple months, and I wanted to tell Sarah that I loved her. And I just felt like just saying it wasn't enough. Like I had to, like I feel like just saying the words like wouldn't capture it. And so I needed to sing the word. Like I needed her to hear it in a song. Like, because there's something powerful about music where it, it allows us to speak something in a way that words just can't capture, right? There's a, there's a man named Bernard of Clairvaux who a, a thousand years ago wrote um, this hymn, O Sacred Head, Now Wounded. And in it, he says, what shall I borrow to thank thee? What language shall I borrow to thank thee, thy dear friend? He's talking about Jesus here, and he's, he's saying, what, what language can I even use to, to thank God for what he's... Like, words don't do it justice, right? You've heard that saying, words just don't do it justice, because some realities are, are so great that they can't just be said, they must be sung, right? Simply saying the words don't do justice to the truth that's trying to be portrayed in the words, right? And so... The reason I bring this up is because we, we've been in this a series on Exodus, and this morning we are entering into Exodus 15, and Exodus 15 begins with a song. And um, what's, what's interesting, just to, I guess, catch you up on, on Exodus if you haven't been here, um, the Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. And they cry out to God, and God hears their cries, and he sends Moses to deliver them. Now, Pharaoh doesn't want to let them go, and so there's the 10 plagues, and after the 10th plague, Pharaoh's like, just get out of here, go. Well, they end up wandering over by the Red Sea, and um, Pharaoh changes his mind. He's like, we're going to go get them. And they're at this point where they have their backs against the Red Sea. The biggest army in the entire world is coming at them, and they're freaking out. They're, they're, they're completely in fear. And, they, um, and at that point, God says, just be still. Watch how I fight for you. And he splits the Red Sea in half. If you've seen any of the movies, they go through walls of water on both sides. They get through. The Egyptians follow. The water crashes in on them. And that's where we pick up here in Exodus 15. And they, they get to this other side, and it's like they're finally free. Like they're, they've, all that baggage is left behind them. They're finally free. And the way that they respond is by singing a song. It starts, Exodus 15, that says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. See, I think the, the first thing that I noticed here was that worship, singing, 
is the natural and proper response to God's goodness and grace. Like, the, the response to God's salvation ought to be worship. It ought to be singing. Um, one of the things I've found really difficult having kids is trying to teach, like, theological truths to young kids, um, trying to explain this, like, big, heady idea to a five-year-old is, is actually really, really difficult, right? Because, um, like, he doesn't understand all the words that, you know, I, I don't have to explain, like, give him a dictionary and say, okay, this is what this word means, this is what this word means, this is what this word means, you know? And so trying to explain theological ideas to a five-year-old has been pretty difficult. But one of the things um, I thought of was worship and how I would, like, how could I teach my, my five-year-old about worship? What is worship, if he asks? And I think this is the, the simplest um, explanation I've found, and it's an explanation for kids, and I love it. It says the worship is our response to God's awesomeness. Worship is simply our response to God's awesomeness. Um, and when we know that when we talk about worship, worship isn't just singing, right? Even in Romans um, chapter 12, verse 1, it talks about how uh, in view of God's mercy, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice and that this is our uh, true and proper worship. So this is this idea that not just singing is worship, right? Like our whole life can be worship to God. Like the way we wake up in the morning can be worship to God. The way we treat our family, that's worship to God. The way we treat strangers is worship to God. The, the way you eat breakfast can be worshiped. You know, everything you do throughout your day can be uh, an act of worship to God. And so, uh, you know, worship is not just singing, um, but we do have this thing of corporate worship, right, where we come together and we worship together. Uh, this is called a worship service. And so even in this service, though, worship, you know, I think sometimes we get confused and we think worship was what we just did, like the singing part of this morning was worship. And then there's the, the teaching and there's the, all the other stuff that happens. But the, the idea of a worship service is that every part of this morning would be worship, right? Like when we open God's word, that's worship. When, when we sing, that's worship. When we, take, like when we give an offering, that's worship. All these things that we do on a Sunday morning are worship. And so worship is not simply singing, but I think there is something really special about singing in worship. Um, singing, I, I, the best quote that I could find about singing comes from uh, the theologian Buddy the Elf. And he says that singing is just like talking except longer and louder and you move your voice up and down, right? That's, I mean, that's what singing is. And what we find throughout scripture is that even God himself sings. In Zephaniah 3.17, um, it says, that he will rejoice over you, talking about God, God will rejoice over you with singing. Um, and, and we also learn that Jesus sang. Uh, in Matthew 26, 30, right after the Last Supper, it says that when they, this is speaking of Jesus and his disciples, when they had sung a hymn, then they went to the Mount of Olives. So like at the end of the Last Supper, Jesus and all his buddies, his, his disciples, they sang together. God himself sings. And we are invited to sing with him. Um, singing is actually mentioned over 400 times throughout scripture. 
and it's specifically commanded for us to do 50 times, right? Singing is commanded for us. It's not a suggestion. It's like, this is what you should do. Psalm 96 actually does it three times just in in the first two verses. It says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. You know, singing to God is not like the extra credit work for the artsy people with a good voice, right? Like singing to God is for all of us. And you've probably heard it said like, oh, God doesn't care how bad your voice is. And that is true. Like, the people around you might care about how bad your voice is. But, but I never knew how true that was until um, this Father's Day. My, my little five-year-old, like, sang a song, and my wife recorded it. He just made up a song um, about me. And, gosh, it was, like, the most beautiful, like, you know, I don't cry because I'm a strong man, but um, my face got all wet, and, like, you know, it was just, it, it was beautiful. And guess what? He wasn't couldn't carry a tune. There, like, there wasn't really a, a solid rhythm to it. But God, I didn't care at all about those things. Like, it, my son was singing to me, like, about how much he loved me. And, like, for that moment, I was like, oh, man, I get it. Like, I get what it is, like, for us when we worship God. Um, and so, in Exodus 15, this is what the Israelites are doing. They're, they're proclaiming their salvation, And so instead of going, uh, and I encourage you to read the entirety of this song. It's a pretty long song. And so we're not going to go through the entirety of this song this morning. Um, But what I want to do this morning is kind of give us a biblical understanding of what worship is, what singing to God is. And I think what, what really, in worship, there's a primary purpose and then there are secondary purposes in worship. And here's what, I, here's what I mean by that. Like a car, for example. There's a primary purpose. There's a primary function that a car serves. The, a car, its primary function is to get you from point A to point B. Now, there's a lot of secondary functions that a car can serve, right? A car, you know, it can play music. And it can, um, if you're lucky, it has AC. And, uh, you know, you can keep stuff in it. There's, like, all these secondary functions a car has. But if it doesn't get you from point A to point B, then it's just, like, a box that you listen to music in, right? Or it's just a box that you get air conditioning in. If it doesn't serve its primary function, it's not really a car. And so with worship, there's a primary purpose to worship. And that primary purpose is to bring glory to God. See, worship is not about us. It's not about how I sound. It's not how about, how, about how I look. It's about the, the object of our worship. See, if you're new to a church, you might be tempted to think that, you know, this whole thing that we do, that these people are the performers and we're the audience and God is helping them kind of do their thing. And I, that, that's got it all backwards. The truth is that we are all the performers. God is the audience, and they're the ones helping us do do this thing called worship, right? Rick Warren puts it a great way. Uh, Pastor Rick Warren, he says, if you have ever said, I didn't get anything out of worship today, you worshiped for the wrong reason, because worship isn't for you, it's for God. See, the, 
the heart of worship, the main purpose of worship is to magnify God. Uh, Psalm 69.30 says that I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Now, when it comes to magnification, there's kind of like two uh, ways that it's done, you know, either with a microscope or a telescope. Now, what a microscope does, it takes something that's very, very small and makes that thing bigger so you can see it. But a telescope takes something that's very, very big yet far away and, and makes it bigger so it's closer to the actual size that it is. Right? And so when we talk about magnifying God, it's this telescope magnification. God is so big that, you know, and, and what we do in worship is hopefully our view of God gets even bigger, closer to what he actually is. It'll never actually be as big as, as God actually is, but our, our goal in worship is that we make God bigger. We, and the, the truth is, I think some of us get it backwards. We, we are here to, to magnify God, but I, I think so often this can happen in my life too. We think God is here to magnify us. Like, God is here to make me happy, and God is here to make me successful and get me, you know, my goals and my dreams. Like, God, help me with those things. And the truth is, I'm here to magnify God, to be about God. See, we can't magnify God and ourselves at the same time. John the Baptist understood this in, in John chapter 3, when he's talking about Jesus, he says, he must become greater, I must become less. True worship takes the spotlight off of us and places it on God. We can't be the center of the universe and, and worship God. It's just impossible. We, when we take the spotlight off of ourselves and put it on God, that's when true worship happens, and that's the primary purpose of worship. But then there are these secondary purposes to worship, I think. The, the, I think one of the secondary purposes of worship is that it multiplies our joy. Now, stay with me for a little bit on this, because um, this is pretty cool. Um, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So what's this verse? You've probably heard this verse before, that God takes dirt from the ground and creates man. But it's not a man yet. It's just a corpse, right? Like he, he, it's merely a shell. The, the power hasn't been turned on. The, the switch has not been flipped yet. Until what happens? It's only when God breathes does life come into him, right? He literally breathes life into him. Before, there's, before the breath, there's no life. After the breath, life. Hebrew scholars for, for thousands of years have actually taught that one of the most essential characteristics of the human soul is the breath of God. They believed that every human being, you and I, all contain the breath of God, and that, that, that's like essentially what our soul is. And this is actually repeated throughout Scripture in Job 33.4. Uh, it says that the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And so when we talk about our soul... Like, there's something connected between our soul and the breath of God. Every human being has God's breath within them, and that's why singing can be so powerful. It's one of the, the highest offices that a human can possess is a, as a worshiper 
of God. See, when we take God's breath that gives me my soul and return that breath to honor him, our soul finds its home. That's exchange, that exchange is where we discover true life. That exchange is where we, where we find purpose, where we find meaning. Psalm 103, the psalmist writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And then at the end, he repeats it. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. See, when I use my borrowed breath to worship the Lord, my soul finds its home. It's what we were made to do, is to worship God. What is the chief end of man? That we should glorify God and enjoy him forever. When we, when we sing and worship to God, it connects us to the very thing we were created for. That's the first kind of secondary purpose. So then I think it also helps us to remember. Now this, uh, a couple, well, I guess a week and a half ago, um, we were at camp with a bunch of the students, and there were a couple days, uh, I was driving one of the vans while we were there, and there were a couple days where uh, my van got loaded up with 13 girl students, and then another girl leader in the front seat, and then me driving. So I had 14 girls in a car as I was driving for hours and hours and hours. And um, what I realized that was just absolutely incredible was that all 14 of those girls knew every single word to every single Taylor Swift song that has ever been written. Like, it was absolutely incredible. And somehow now I know the words to almost every single Taylor Swift song that's ever been written. Like, we have this amazing ability to recall these songs that we heard growing up or these TV jingles. That's the whole point of a TV jingle, right? These nursery rhymes. Like, when we had kids and I started hearing nursery rhymes again, I'm like, oh, I know all, like, I know all these. I haven't sung them for 25 years, but I still know them, right? The, the music has a way of sticking with us. It's got a, a powerful uh, mnemonic ability that scientists are actually starting to, to study. There's a guy named Oliver Sacks, um, and he wrote a book about this, about the connection between music and memory. It's called Musicophilia, and he wrote this in the book that every culture has songs and rhymes to help children learn the alphabet, numbers, and other lists. And even as adults, we are limited in our ability to memorize series or to hold them in mind unless we use mnemonic devices or patterns. The most powerful of these devices are rhyme, meter, and song. Like even in Alzheimer's patients who can't remember the names of their loved ones, they can still remember the songs they sang as a kid. Isn't that amazing? God even kind of points this out in Deuteronomy 31. Uh, this is towards the end of Moses' life. He tells Moses, like, hey, I'm going to teach you this song, and you need to teach this song to the people because I want them to remember something. He says, like, look, you need to teach this song to the people so that their children can learn it, and then their children can learn it. It's like, if you want to remember, use this song. And I think we need this superpower of memory because we have a really bad forgetting problem. The Israelites had a really bad forgetting problem. You're going to see that over and over as we go through Exodus. We have a bad forgetting problem. I've, I've brought this up before. Uh, I call it spiritual amnesia. Um, when I was in college, I lived on, uh, I went to U of A, Bear Down, 
And we lived just north of campus, um, off of Mountain Avenue. And uh, I lived in a house with a bunch of guys for like two or three years. And then we moved. And we were about you know, half a mile farther from campus, but kind of off the same main road. And so uh, when we first moved for like two or three months, I would drive home on my, on my drive home. And all of a sudden, I would end up at my old house. Right? Like I would pull up in front of my old house and remember, oh wait, I don't live here anymore. Like, and this happened over and over and over again. Like after a long day at school, somehow, you know, autopilot took over and I'm just like sitting outside of my old house and I'm like, this is not, this is not my home anymore. Like my, my house is over here now. I think that same sort of thing happens to us spiritually. Like we forget that, that God has called us out of what we used to be part of, right? Like Monday comes and, and the grumbling starts to happen. This is exactly what happens in this story, actually. Right after they finish um, this song, in verse 21, they finish this song, you know, Miriam and Moses. Miriam is Moses' sister. They sing this song. They get everyone singing. It's like so joyful. Then uh, verse 22 says that Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went to the desert of Shur. And for three days... They traveled in the desert without finding water. Three days go by. They travel in the desert. They don't find any water. Then they come to Marah. I think that's how you say it. They could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why they called it Marah, which means bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we going to drink? They have such a bad forgetting problem. Like three days earlier, they walked through a sea with walls of water on either side of them. And then they go a few days without water, which is difficult, but they start to think, like, where's God now? Like, what have you done for me lately, right? This book, Exodus, it's, it's 40 chapters long. We're in chapter 15. And at this point, you got to think, like, wait, they've already exodused in the, uh, whatever the past tense of Exodus is, right? Like, they've already left. They're out of Egypt. And there's still 25 more chapters. They have this grumbling problem that's going to come up over and over again. And what, what's happened is effectively God has taken these people out of slavery, but he still needs to take the slavery out of his people, right? In, in theology, in theological terms, we'd say that they have been justified, but now begins this slow and sometimes painful task of sanctification, Right? We are freed from the penalty of sin. We are becoming free from the power of sin. And one day we will be free from the presence of sin. But right now, they're in the middle. And this is what the Israelites are experiencing. Like they just saw miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And, and again, they're questioning God. And, and immediately after this, in chapter 16, they're going to start grumbling again, saying they want to go back to Egypt. Like, we should have just stayed in Egypt. I think it's captured pretty well in this, the hymn, Come Thou Fount, when it says, Lord, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This spiritual amnesia that makes us prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. The people grumble and so what does Moses do? In verse 25, it says that Moses then cries out to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord. And God tells him, take a stick and put it in the water, and that's going to fix it. 
right? Which I think ought to remind them of the very first thing that God did, the very first plague was when Moses took a stick, he stuck it in the Nile River, and it turned to blood and made it undrinkable. And now he's taking a stick and putting it in this undrinkable water, and it's becoming drinkable again. And part of this is like, don't you remember what I did for you? I, I, I can make water undrinkable. I can make it drinkable. Trust me. Don't you know what I've done? There's a huge difference here, I think, between grumbling and crying out. Because when Moses cries out, God answers him. God, God wants to hear us cry out. But throughout Scripture, it tells us not to grumble. Actually, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, Paul tells us not to grumble like those Israelites did in the desert. Like it's commanded that we shouldn't grumble like those Israelites. But then again, throughout Scripture, we see all these laments, all these people who cry out to God. And I think there's a very specific difference between grumbling and lamenting to God. You see, uh, there's a, a pastor, I, I thought, actually put it perfectly. He says, when it seems like sorrows and grief are a lot and a season of hardship has been ordained for us, we can be tempted to desire the comforts we once had more than the purposes and promises of God. In the long, dark nights of suffering, comfort and ease quietly become idols that we look to for hope. See, with the Israelites, their grumbling is always linked back to this desire to go back to their old life, to this desire to go back to Egypt. Later on, he says, lament, says, confess your anguish, confess your pain, lay it bare. However, lament then directs us to turn our eyes upon Christ, the many comforts promised to us through the Holy Spirit, and we are reminded of the provision and contentment that comes in Christ. So I think one of the key differences between lament and grumbling is lament is to God while grumbling is about God. See, lament trusts God enough to bring to him our problems and our anger and our fears, to bring those things to God. Grumbling, there's this distrust of God where you know what, he can't, he's not going to want to hear this, he's not going to want to be part of this, I'm just going to, you know, lament brings those things to God's presence. This is precisely why singing is so important. It, it reminds us of God's promises, it helps us to cling to him, it, it moves truth from our head to our heart, it forms us as a people. Um, every night I, I sing to my kids before we go to bed, um, my, my two boys, Judah and Cohen, now I have a third, Ezra, but he doesn't get any songs yet. Um, but Cohen and Judah, I sing every night to them, and I sing the doxology. And you're probably thinking, wow, he's so spiritual, he sings the doxology. Well, the truth is, um, you know, after about 45 minutes of bedtime routine and, you know, six books and three cups of water and two bathroom breaks... Like, I was just like, so, I don't want to deal with this. I need, you need to go to bed. And like, we still got a song to do. And I was like, what's the, the shortest song I know, right? Like, okay, the doc's all, that's like five lines. That's the shortest song I know. We're doing that. I'm out, right? But what's actually happened and become beautiful is that this song is this reminder to me that whatever day, like, whatever the day has looked like, whatever bed, the bedtime routine has looked like, whatever circumstances have come my way, that God is still on the throne. And that I can still praise him. I can still sing to him because he's good. 
See, we're going to finish this service by singing again, like another one and a half songs, the doxology included. And I want to invite you to respond to God's awesomeness. As Psalm 96 says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of worship. God, we we just want this to be about you. Help us to magnify you, God. We thank you that our soul finds its home, that our purpose is found in worshiping you. God, help us to do that this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.